Welcome to Episode 9 of The Drift, a Starfinder podcast which is presented by NerdsOnEarth.com. This week, we are joined by Owen Stevens, who is the Starfinder design lead at Paizo. And we talk about the game, the development, and what we can look forward to as we are on the eve of Starfinder's release. Welcome everyone to The Drift, and today we are very pleased and honored to uh, have with us uh, Owen Stevens as he comes to uh, what this episode will be released on, Starfinder Eve, and so we're excited to uh, to have you here, Owen. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I am in a, a very fortunate position where I, uh, as a subscriber, have already got the PDF of the core rulebook and some other things, and uh, I am... Um, really blown away with i've had it for about a day and i've had got to to look through different parts of it so i uh i know like everyone else we're really excited for the game and i know for you all at paizo you have to be really pleased as you come up on release day yeah i mean this is this has been a long time coming we've been working on it for uh more than a year and a half at this point um and of course we shipped the book off to the printer months ago so we're working on the next book and the book after that the book after that but when you're releasing a new product like this the release itself still takes a fair amount of work. There are preview blogs to put together. There are questions to answer at the forums. There's uh, information to gather if there's anything we need to address later. There are pre-gen characters to put together. So when you're launching a whole new line, there's a, a lot of work that goes into it beyond just reading, writing, editing, developing, laying out everything, the, the rules itself. So it's it's it really feels like the culmination of like the last half of, of my life, although it's only been a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. It sort of piles up, doesn't it? It really does. Well, and so you have a really long and rich history of working in role-playing games. I, w- I would love to sort of hear your, what we call your nerd origin story. How did you get started in games? Uh, and what's brought you to the place where you're at now doing what you're, you're doing for Paizo? Um, so I'll try and give you the condensed version because otherwise this podcast will be about that instead of about Starfinder, and I don't think anyone <laughs> wants that. Um, but cast your mind back to 1982. Uh, the reason 1982 specific is important because my parents decided to take a trip to Europe, and they were smart people, so they decided to leave the kids behind. And I was left with uh, my Uncle Lucian and Aunt Rosemary. That was the year of the Knoxville World's Fair. They happened to live in Knoxville, so we went to the World's Fair, and... My parents were gone for the whole summer, so I had a lot of time to crawl around his house. And he had an Apple computer with a flight simulator, and he had uh, old-scale Lincoln Logs. But he also had a first-edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. And I was fascinated by this book. The cover was fascinating. The, the contents were fascinating. And he saw me looking at it, and he said, hey, if you can figure that game out, we'll, oh, we can play it. But he did not have a player's handbook. Um, and we were not able to find a player's handbook. But I really oh, wow. wanted to play this game. So I looked at everything that the DMG talked about was in the player's handbook, and I made up characters based off what they had for these are the stats for a monster, and these are the kinds of things a character might do. So it is literally the case that I was doing role-playing game design before I ever got to play a role-playing game. <laughs> um, and it it was all terrible, I assure you. Uh but it was enough that we were able to successfully play a game. I was hooked. Uh, I was fascinated. Uh, and I was only there for the summer. So then I went home and there weren't any kids uh, on my block. I mean, just literally almost none whatsoever. 
So I got to buy a bunch of D&D books, and then I couldn't do anything with them. And luckily, my mother, who I've referred to more than once as the Empress of the Geeks, uh, went to her friends who are college age and said, hey, my son wants to do role-playing games, and, and their D&D doesn't seem to be anyone around he can play with. So they suggested Tunnels and Trolls because it had solo modules. So my mother bought uh, the core book and a whole bunch of solo modules for Tunnels and Trolls, and I played that for years. Then when I moved to my next school, when I was carrying Tunnels and Trolls books around, other kids that were into this, that sort of stuff saw what I had, and they were like, oh, we play you know, Vigilants and Vigilantes or Starfleet Battles. So it was literally my geek flag was this book, and I did not have a lot of <laughs> friends prior to moving to this new school. And then suddenly there was this one thing we all had in common. So I was playing mostly role-playing games, but also some war games and card games and war games and such. Uh, as my primary social activity from that point to the modern day. And that is how I met most of my friends. In the 1990s, uh, I was constantly frustrated that I could not buy as much role-playing material as I wanted. And my wife looked at me and she said, well, you've got all these neat ideas that you put in your games. Why don't you try and write some articles for Dragon Magazine? And then you can make enough money on Dragon Magazine from selling articles to buy a subscription. So my original goal was just to write enough to be able to afford a subscription to Dragon Magazine. And I got a few articles in, thanks to Dave Gross, who was a big help. Instead of just saying these ideas are all terrible, he said, I can't use any of these, but you suggested a dwarven name generator, and I can't use it, but I could use an elven name generator. So I wrote one, and that was in issue 251 of Dragon Magazine. That was the first thing I got in print. I'd actually been paid for stuff that has yet to ever be printed. Uh, that was, I think, 97. A few years later, which is the coast, was hiring game designers, and I had been doing a lot of articles for Dragon Magazine, so on the strength of those, I submitted. Uh, they hired me. I moved out to Seattle. I'm originally from Oklahoma. Uh, and I worked on the Star Wars D20 role-playing game and the Wheel of Time role-playing game. And uh, unfortunately, 14 months later, uh, that position went away, so I moved back home. But that had been the launch of 3.0 and D20. So as someone who is at Wizards of the Coast, when the D20 movement began, um, my freelance skills were suddenly actually something that I could make a living on. And several people were were a big help in pointing work my way. I, I, I had a lot of advantages thanks to the people I knew at Wizards of the Coast. So I did that uh, as a full-time freelancer pretty much from then to 2014. Um, there were some periods in there where there were companies going out of business and therefore they weren't paying their invoices. And therefore I had to like work as a bank customer service person for a while, but basically it was full-time freelance the whole time. And I got involved in uh, a company called Super Genius Games that did third-party stuff for uh, Pathfinder and I wrote some material for Paizo because they'd picked up the Dragon and Dungeon Magazine licenses, and then they started doing Pathfinder, so I started writing stuff for them, and I'd written for them for many, many, many years, and had applied for a job at Paizo, I think three times, it might have been four times, um, and they had always decided that they were going to hire someone who had less experience and, let's be honest, fewer bad habits than I did, because I'd worked for a lot of companies and a lot of game systems. But in 2014, they decided they, in fact, wanted to expand with a person with some more experience. They called me and asked if I wanted to apply, and I did, and they hired me, and I moved out here. So that's really a, 
awesome to think about. Like so many of the people we've talked to, you 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 started with a, a hobby that started even when you were a kid, and it's continued to grow. Uh, I think it's one of the the cool things to see about role playing games is that um, as we get older, like we learn more things and adapt and and get to be engaged in different ways. So it's um it's really cool to to hear your story of kind of especially uh that you you were uh, going back and trying to create the rules from the uh, just the Dungeons Masters Guide. Yeah, and I suspect that has colored how I approach role-playing games ever since, right? Because I'm always trying to analyze them, find out what's going on behind the part that you actually get to play with. And that's one of the things that led me to design. But the other thing I have to say is that, you know, a lot of my friends were also playing a lot of these games, but they were smart and picked up things like marketable skills. Um, and I didn't, I just spent all my time playing. So pretty much it's be a game designer or starve for me. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that, uh, right now you're doing very, very well. Thank you. So when you think about Starfinder, we've talked about how, um, Paizo made the decision to start this new product. So you're in a unique position in that you've been a part of launching some other games that were tied to intellectual property. So you mentioned the star Wars game. Yeah. Um, as you think about the uh, the, the Starfinder experience, how is that different for you um, in terms of of preparing a, this new thing to launch? Yeah, so I've been involved with a lot of uh, core rule books, um, the three different D twenty versions of Star Wars, including Saga, which I was one of the, the co creators with with uh, Rodney Thompson. Uh, we did a tabletop EverQuest D twenty game. Uh, we did uh, Wheel of Time. We did Thieves World. And all of those were licensed properties. So those are all cases where the world, however well or badly it's been defined, it already exists. So you're trying to make the game rules match that world as best you can. Uh, The interesting thing for me with Starfinder was that while a lot of the core concepts had already been created by uh, our creative director, James Sutter, and the uh, creative lead, Rob McCreary, um, before I was brought on board, because they'd already done some basic groundwork. Uh, the Drift, for example, was something they had before I was brought on board. But after that, when we started saying, hey, what do we want to do for a a class? What races do we want to make core races? How do we want to handle cybernetics or psychic or magic? All of those were things where we had some pretty broad marching orders. This was the universe of the Pathfinder role-playing game, but set centuries or thousands of years in the future. But beyond that, the details were largely up to us. Um, And of course, there are other stakeholders involved who wanted to make sure we didn't suggest something stupid. But we got to build the world or the galaxy, to to be more accurate, in tandem with the rules. So we were able to say things like, hey, we want to have something that isn't just a, a space cleric or a space fighter or a space rogue. Where can we go to find something that will seem really, really different? And that led to the idea of the Solarian. But while we're talking about the Solarian, we can say, well, where do Solarians come from? Why why are there Solarians centuries in the future, but there weren't in Pathfinder? And so the idea that the Solarians were a tradition that weren't common in the solar system where the Pact worlds are, the Galarian solar system, but they were common on the Kasatha homeworld. So the Kasatha showed up, they brought that tradition with them. And it exists elsewhere too, right? It can be found throughout the galaxy. It's just something that was not originally around in the place where we are setting the starting point for most of these games. And that allowed us to do those things together. And that then it naturally, you think, well, okay, if, if the Kasatha are what brought the Solarian and their philosophical idea of the cycle, which drives them, then probably our iconic will be a Kasatha Solarian because that goes well together. And getting to do all those things back and forth where you say, 
what rules concepts do we want? What world concepts do we want? How will these work well together? What do they say about each other? Was really interesting. And it's a different process from, okay, there are Jedi, or okay, there's Randall Thor, or okay, if you're working on, you know, Mutants and Masterminds, we know there are, are Black Death Rays. Uh, how do we write those up? So I found that to be a, a interesting, different take on how the process worked. Yeah, it's it's a whole different level of ground zero to build up from, and and like you said, it had to be uh, it had to be a great experience to be able to to mesh and merge some of those ideas and concepts. I uh, I think as I've read through the core rulebook, you, you definitely can see that in places, uh, character creation, like you said, being a, an obvious one. So as you as you're building out in the game, I'm sure you guys are having to play test it and to to do different things to you know, to test the rules, to figure out where, where it might need some shoring up as you play tested it. What, what stood out to you as you got closer to the final product as, um, is making Starfinder unique. So one of the things that I found fascinating was that because we had both advanced technology and at least some fairly ubiquitous magic, um, there are things that are really difficult to arrange for in different other role-playing games, especially Pathfinder that are just day-to-day, everyday stuff in Starfinder. So, for example, a character who gets a first-level suit of armor, just any suit of armor in Starfinder, that suit of armor can seal him up and make him immune to the rigors of vacuum and negative atmosphere and all those sorts of things for 24 hours as an afterthought almost, right? Your armor is also your spacesuit. To be able to survive in a vacuum for 24 hours in Pathfinder or most role-playing games takes a long time. And once we realized that we were going to take the step of saying this thing, the, the ability to survive in a vacuum, is really common and easily accessible, it also means we could say, well, that means that if there are cool ideas we want to use to build off that, if we want androids to have advantages like that, if we want to have a star shaman who can just step out in a vacuum and survive without a spacesuit, those are things that will not seem weird or unbalance the game. We can just take those awesome ideas and move them forward. Uh, it's the same with things like flight or or the ability to make energy attacks or attack in a big area. Honestly, what a soldier can do is different from what a fighter can do, in part because jetpacks and flamethrowers are really, really common. That also meant that we were saying, well, if those are all things technology can do, what is magic doing since magic doesn't have to focus on lightning bolts and fireballs? You you can pick up a gun if you need to know those things. And of course, you'll have some attack spells because you can you can attack in different ways and concentrate that power maybe better than you can with a gun that you can afford at that level. But it also means that we can say, well, if you have a technomancer who is someone who manipulates technology with magic or who blends technology and magic together, what can they do with that that's cool? And in a lot of games I've played in where magic and technology both exist, they don't get along well. The more technology you put on something, the harder it is to make it magical or or magic actually makes technology not work well. Those are common tropes. And we just didn't go that route in Starfinder. And our Starfinder, if if you want to have a holy plasma cannon, that is easy to arrange for. It's not difficult at all. And that, that created a different feel for the whole world, which we could then explore with both the game mechanics and things like some of the adventures and, and setting material we're working on now. And and I think, like you're saying, that balance between uh, science fiction and fantasy, I think you guys have, from what I've seen, have done a really fantastic job of balancing that out. So neither feels like it's an add-on to the other, which happens, I think, in a lot of games. It, it feels like one gets shoehorned on top of the other. 
And instead, you you guys have worked really hard to merge those things. Yeah, we really want this to be a game where, where, for example, you can say, hey, my soldier has no interest in magic and doesn't trust magic because he doesn't know how to use it. And you're not penalized for that. But you can also say, hey, my soldier is an arcane assailant who comes from a long line of magic-wielding warriors, magi, and eldritch knights. And he thinks that putting magic on his machine gun is just a smart move. So those are both things you can do within the game. And I like the different kinds of builds you can do with that. Yeah. And, and so as you play tested, were there any that stood out to you as a personal favorite in terms of combination of race, theme, class? I, I had a lot of fun with my mercenary dwarf solarium. Um, and, and that is sort of a favorite for me. But I tell you, one of the things that stood out to me is I ran a play test that was four soldiers because I wanted to know could four soldiers be a viable selection of characters. And if you give them different themes, which can alter what core class skills they have, and they've got tons of feats so they can afford to spend feats elsewhere, uh, you can make four soldiers that includes like a medic and a uh, scout and a heavy soldier and a, a melee combatant. And even with just that one class, you can end up with four very different characters who are capable of covering the bases of what you need to do for a typical Starfinder adventure. And that was the thing that really took me by surprise, because if you try and do just four fighters in a Pathfinder game, generally speaking, you're going to find yourself in trouble with certain kinds of encounters. And that is much less the case in Starfinder. Yeah. And I think, I think like you're saying, it, you, you could take it and, and do some really interesting things with the classes, the themes, the race that it, you're not stuck in one sort of mode. You can really take those and be pretty diverse with them. I'm fascinated by the fact that in character creation, you guys put finalizing your ability scores at the end of the character creation. Is is there a reason for that? There is. Um, so as you build what kind of character you want to play and you play with things like what's my theme, what's my race, what's my class, especially if you've never made a Starfinder character before, um, you're going to be exposed to ideas as you are walked through that process. And so we wanted you to have some idea what your character wanted to be good at before you decided what your character is good at, right? Because your ability scores have a significant impact on what am I going to do well with. And so if you have looked at other aspects of your character, theme in particular, and you have picked some stuff that you want to go together, that can then inform what ability scores are important to me. Because we didn't want someone to say, hey, I want to make a really strong character, so I'm going to give myself a strength of 18. Ooh, and Technomancers are neat, so I'll play a Technomancer. Well, you can play a Strength 18 Technomancer, but that is probably not going to give you the feel you want for a Technomancer. Um, all our classes have key ability scores, which is the thing that a lot of their powers are built off of. And so if you pick your class first, you can say, well, Technomancer says my key ability is Int, so I probably want a better intelligence than the 10 I gave my character with an 18 Strength. So maybe I'll have a 16 and I'll go ahead and have a 12 strength and I'll go ahead and decide this is a technomancer that wants to carry a, a chain sword around. You can do those things and burn a feat for proficiency and, and so on. But we wanted you to not be blindsided by the fact that the other decisions you make can very much impact what ability scores will mean for your character. And, and I think by doing that, you've made it so even, even with just the diversity of race, themes, classes, and now the, the ability score at the end, I, I think it just creates for a variety of character possibilities that um, don't show up in some other games. So I, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch as people kind of 
tweak and, and create characters and, and share ideas that way. I hope so. What I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what other people do with this stuff. And uh, one of the things we wanted to make sure with Starfinder was that if you had never played a role-playing game, or if you played a role-playing game not for a long time, or you're not familiar with how Pathfinder or D20 in general works, that you'd actually be able to take this book and read it and get an idea what is this game like? What do we expect to do? How should I make a character? Um, and we had uh, our development coordinator, Amanda Hammond Koontz, who's part of the Starfinder team when we were working on this book, uh, go through and try and figure out if you're coming at this cold, what do you need to get told and how do we tell them that? And she did just a phenomenal job making sure that you could put this book down in front of people and they could take some time and make characters and get a good idea what they're going to do and even have fun in that process. Yeah, which is is a huge part of... um of role-playing games, right? We we're creating these characters, these stories, and uh, going to use those characters to tell more stories. I think, uh, I think that process is, um, is going to be really fun to see you with star finder. I hope so. That's definitely what we're looking for. So as the game launches, you guys have done a fantastic job. There's an adventure path. That's going to come out. You've got star finder society, organized play. I, I'm curious to think, for you, if you're going to play right away, what what would you jump into as a as the first uh, Starfinder endeavor you were going to take on? So I'm of course in this place where I have seen uh, all of the Adventure Path material in the core rulebook, and and you know I've seen the Alien Archive, which isn't even coming out till October, uh, and we're trying to have a pretty high level of coordination between the amazing work that the uh, Starfinder organized play team is doing and uh, the Starfinder team is working on the rulebook. So I have a pretty good idea what all of that stuff is. And as a result, what I'm sort of looking forward to is someone saying, hey, I'm just going to make up a Starfinder game. Everyone make first level characters. We'll see how it goes and get to play Starfinder where I have no idea what's coming. Because when you're playtesting, you know, playtesting, some of that is actually playing a game so that you can throw those loops at people and see how it goes. But some of it is, OK, we should really try a game with 15th level characters. OK, we should really try a fight where no one wins initiative. OK, we should really see what happens if everybody has grenades. So you create these scenarios and run through them to see what happens to the game when this thing happens. But that means a lot of that isn't really about having fun in the way you do in a, in a traditional role playing experience. Uh, Jason Keeley, who's on the Starfinder team, had a playtest scenario where you end up on a a ship overrun by mutated goblins. And I played that one scenario, I think four times. It might have just been three. Uh, and I saw it a couple of times. So, and I'm trying different things each time so they can see how does this combination of characters work? Are these actions worthwhile? How does the uh, action economy operate if I am trying to be a melee combatant, etc.? But it meant that I didn't have that excitement of not having a pretty good idea what's coming, even though he'd switch things up occasionally, put different things in the room. Uh, I didn't have that exploratory feeling that for me is part of a lot of role-playing games and something that we think a lot of people will be doing with Starfinder. So what I'm looking forward to right now, as far as a game is the thing I don't know is going to happen. <laughs> the thing that someone just runs off the cuff. Yeah. Somebody taking the, the core ideas of Starfinder and creating a new thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as we're on the eve of release, one of the things that I think I've been a little surprised at how quiet Paizo has been, has been about the ship combat rules. Can you, can you take us into the thought process uh, that went behind building that out? Uh, that to me seems like it's a whole nother piece um, that contributes to the, the core rule book being as large as it is. It absolutely is. I mean, <clears throat> there are, there are three things that really contributed to the size of that book. 
One of them is that we're trying to have all the information you would have had in the Pathfinder core rulebook. Then on top of that, we're trying to have enough information to explain what the entire game setting is like. On top of that, we have to have a starship combat system, which is yet another form of combat. And those things together just add up to a lot of material. Um, so we want starship combat to be something that the players in the GM can ignore or focus on or only go to occasionally, depending on what kind of story they want to tell. There are a lot of science fiction and space opera and even science fantasy stories that really focus on a small, scrappy band of, of misfits and adventurers in a starship going out and getting into trouble. So we want to make sure that those things are options. We've got to have starship combat, and we need you to be able to build your starship and modify your starship. And uh, we have the whole thing with Triune giving people access to the drift, so we have our own form of FTL that is an important part of the story. But... We also want to make sure that if what you all want to play is, okay, you are all on Absalom Station, you all live on Absalom Station, and this entire campaign is about dealing with the political factions and the newcomers and the threats and the radiation leaks and the monsters that break out of the zoo on Absalom Station, at which point the Starship Combat rules may enter that game not at all. So one of the design guidelines, and I got to say that, that Jason Bullman did the core of our Starship system, and Jason Keeley really expanded it out. So they did a ton of work on this. Um, and uh, like at the Gamma Trade Show, they were both running the Starship combat system as the preview game they were running for people. And one of those where Jason Keeley was running, some people got recorded. So if people want to know what it's like, you can hunt that down and, and watch it online. Um, but one of the core things was that that it has to be something that you don't have to specialize in to be good at so that if you build a regular character and that character ends up in a starship good op got good op got good op got good options without having to have taken a bunch of specific feats and gear and and skill unlocks or whatever so the actions the characters take are based on the same skills and the same uh, ability scores and such that they would take in personal combat so you there are just a few things that can make you better at that. We've got an ace pilot theme because a lot of people really want to be, I, I am, you know, a Stuke Lucker who happens to be a, a farmer who just miraculously is a really good Starship fighter. That kind of character is something <laughs> people are going to want to play. But for the most part, if you build a character who I want to be uh, good with computers and science and figuring things out, and then you go into starship combat, those same skills are what you will be using to do those things in combat. So that was one design goal. Uh, another design goal was we wanted to make sure that starship combat wasn't, okay, one person gets to fly the ship and everyone else shoots guns, and if you don't want to do one of those two things, you have nothing to do. Um, there are games that have turned starships into a specialty of just a small selection of characters, which means that either everyone has to make those characters or starship scenes are things that just get boring for some of the players. So we built roles into the game, and there are several different roles, um, and pilot is one and gunner is one, but we also have uh, an engineer and a captain uh, and a science officer. And every round, each one of these people get to do something, and what you can do expands as your character gains levels and gains skill ranks um, that is useful in starship combat. And we broke Starship Combat down to uh, its own set of initiatives and its own uh, mapping. It uses a hex grid because that worked better for Starship movement than a square grid. 
Uh, they're really the only big advantage of a square grid is that it's easy to draw a dungeon or a street on it, and we don't currently have dungeons <laughs> or streets floating in space, so the hex grid made more sense for that. But it was also a visual cue that, hey, initiative works differently, the move works differently, so that it's not particularly complicated, and each player only has to really keep track of one role, but it does work differently, and this is a good way for people to know, oh, the hex grid's out, we, we got to be thinking about starship combat. But with those different roles, it means that if you haven't made a character that is maximized for shooting or fixing things, you still have something to do in a starship combat situation because there are options for people with social skills there are options for people with engineering skills and for people with science skills and that is one of the things we wanted to do so that same paradigm that you've got this scrappy group of people who are doing something together which is sort of the basis of honestly most d20 role-playing games right pathfinder and the stuff that came before it starfinder included we we mostly expect you to be between three to six people who are sort of a little different and exceptional we wanted the Starship combat system to work well with that group so that you didn't feel like, okay, well, now only John gets to have fun because no one else put any points into Starship specialization or something. So those two things were the main design goals. Um, and then we just sort of had fun with it, like, well, Eox is a planet of the undead. If it has a space fleet, then that's the corpse fleet. What's that going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we sort of built things from there. I think I think it's really um, smart the way you talked about that you wanted it to be a, a part, a core part of the the game, but also if if people wanted to go in a different direction, that it didn't break the game. Yeah. I think that that's a I think that's a really cool idea, and I also think like you're saying that every character should be involved in in combat in a ship scenario is a, is a really smart dynamic in terms of like you said to. You could see a game grinding to slow halt on a table where one character is doing something while everybody else is, you know, sitting around and uh, get, getting a little bit bored because their character can't do anything. So I think you're really smart to build those sort of as goals for for that part of the game. Yeah, and I can't take any credit for that level of smart because that was all the the people that worked on that system. I just I just got to use it and make a few humble suggestions that we went along. But I am really pleased with the end result. Yeah, it definitely. I, I think. Everyone I've talked to is really excited about starships, but I, I think it it is really smart. You said to you could still have nights or even long term campaigns where you don't have to use uh, the ships and those those parts. So, um, so one of the things that is I've had the PDF and I've been able to look at it is uh, this book is really beautiful in terms of the the artwork and the design as as you all are building that out how um how does that process work i, I would love to hear um what you could share with us uh, and from that standpoint of how how does a, a theme and the color scheme all those kinds of things come together so some of that uh comes from things like okay we're going to have kasatha so we need to describe what kasatha looked like etc but a lot of that is the Starfinder creative design director, that's Sarah E. Robinson. Um, and she's the creative design director for pretty much everything that comes out of Paizo. And so she looks at what do I want as the uh, page treatment and what do I want for the various headers and what do I want uh, for the sidebars and the icons. And the for people that haven't seen the book, uh, just as a simple thing, on the right-hand side of every two-page spread, there is a list of the chapters, right? Overview, character creation, races, classes, skills, feats, etc. And whatever section you are in is highlighted in red. And that's right on the edge of the page, which means if I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, I'm in equipment, 
but I've got a starship section, I can look at the edge of the book and see where starships start. I can just put my thumb in there and automatically go to that section of the book. Um, So those sorts of touches, a lot of the icons, so that when you're looking at a glance, uh, for example, at a spell, there's an icon that tells you is that a a Technomancer spell, a Mystic spell, or both. Those things all go directly to uh, Sarah Robinson, and I think she just did a tremendous job. She's also the person that was finding the artists we were working with, and frequently we just have to do a art order, and we tell her what we need, and then she or the art staff will translate that into something they can send artists and cartographers and get it back. In this case, we actually had the time to do some concept art where we could say, okay, we're going to have Absalom Station, and that's going to be really, really important. We're able to describe it. And then she's able to go to some artists and say, okay, I need you to try and make something that sounds like this. And then they'll send that concept art to us. Just like, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm sorry. Um, and then we're able to say, okay, so this part of this this version of Absalom Station is neat, but we want the dome to be bigger, or, or we want it to be more flat, or we don't want it to look so much like a 1950s flying saucer, or whatever it is. No problem. And so we've got a back and forth on that. So especially with things like the Vesk and the Sheeran, our new races, uh, the iconic characters who in many ways represent a visual guide to the sorts of characters we expect you to make. Um, even a lot of the worlds, for example, that we've got illustrations of, of what does a city scene look like? Those are a lot of places where Sarah was able to get a bunch of concept art, and some of that isn't even in the book, right? A lot of that are things that that we had an early idea of what we wanted androids to look at. It wasn't like, well, we like some things about that android, but we want to do some different things. So then we got a new android, a new android. And once you have those concept art correct, you can then use that as a visual reference. You can go to another artist and say, it's like this, but with green lines, and they're beefy and short, and you know whatever changes you want to make, give them, give them a laser coming out of their eye. Um, and that is one of the things that you, you just usually don't have time to do that with the uh, supplements that come out or follow-up books, right? But when you're setting a whole world the, or even a whole galaxy and the look of that galaxy is so important, that is one of the places where you want someone like Sarah to come in and help build a cohesive feel and work with the artists and have her own graphic skills and put things together. And there were places where we worked with her on things too. Like, you know, we want to make sure that the stacking of information flow makes sense and the sidebars make sense so that we don't put icons where we don't need them because we don't want people to have to try and memorize a new alphabet or anything. But that was a collaborative process, but the the basis of everything being so gorgeous, and it's, it's one of the most gorgeous role-playing books uh, I own. I, I'm aware that I am biased in favor of it, but I think almost anyone looking at it will agree it's a great-looking book. Uh, a lot of that came from the the tremendous amount of work that Sarah and the art team did and all the artists she got to work on it. Well, and it's the combination of it looks great. And like you said, it's very functional. So for for the people that will see the right-hand tab thing, it it, it is going to make using this book as a reference tool so much easier than, I, I mean, honestly, any book I can think of in, in my library for role-playing games. It, Whereas in the past, you sort of have to memorize what page something's on. This is going to be way easier to reference. And uh, it's a really smart like user design piece. It is. And that, as far as I know, <clears throat> that's just something Sarah decided to do, right? Certainly, I was not in any conversation where we said, hey, we should put tabs in it. Um, but that's a place where she has her area of expertise. And we have our areas of expertise. So that's that's a place where we could. Paizo tries to employ smart, talented people and then let them do smart, talented things. Yeah, that's a, that's a great strategy that is working very well. So as I was uh, researching and kind of learning a little bit about your history, one of the things I stumbled into was RPG Superstar. 
And I, I would love if you would kind of talk a little bit about what that has been in the past. And then I would love to know if Paizo's thinking about uh, continuing to, to use that. Sure. So RPG Superstar was an annual contest. Uh, and it was run by, uh, I think, the Paizo executive team initially. And then Sean K. Reynolds took over when he worked at the company. Uh, and he left a little before I came on. So I took over running it for a bit, uh, along with Chris Lambert's. Uh, who did the tech side of thing and did just a tremendous amount of work getting everything to work together. But it was a contest where we would have rounds where people had to do some challenge. Like the first round was almost always design a magic item. Uh, and then the second round might be create a map. The third round might be create a monster. Um, and we would boil down from hundreds or thousands of people initially uh, to uh, key 32 and then 16 and then maybe eight and then four. Um, until we got down to one person who was the winner of RPG Superstar that year. Uh, and that person got to write a 64-page module for Paizo uh, under contract for money. And there are a lot of names that people will recognize who originally uh, came to Paizo's attention through RPG Superstar. Uh, Neil Spicer won, I believe, the very first one. And that's a name that a lot of Paizo fans will recognize from all his work with us, uh, as well as his work with Legendary Games. <clears throat> uh, Rob McCreary... Uh, was a runner-up the first year. Uh, Jason Keeley, who's uh, one of the developers in the Starfinder team, one of the years I was running it, was a contestant and was doing really, really well and had also done well on an editing test. So we offered him a job, and he actually had to drop out of RPG Superstar because we had hired him, so suddenly he didn't qualify. <laughs> and and we didn't want to distract people, so what he said was, I, I'm moving because I've accepted a job offer, so I have to drop out. And I had kept an extra runner-up that round because I knew we were going to make him a job offer. So I wanted to make sure we had a person to replace him if that came to pass. <clears throat> but I ran it in 2014 and 2015, um, along with uh, Chris Lamberts, as I noted. Um, and that had been uh, the eighth and ninth time, I believe, that we'd run RPG Superstar. And it's a lot of work. And early on, we were trying to get new talent. Um, and by the time we'd done it nine times, we had a lot of good talent. But also, there had started to be a lot of other ways that we could find talent. So there are third-party publishers, uh, and if you do a lot of third-party publishing work, you'll come to our attention. There's uh, Wayfair, which is a fanzine, and we all the developers pay attention to that and take a look at it. So if you start to, to do good work in that, we can get your attention. Uh, there is an uh, open call system for, or at least has been, I'm not sure, not sure if it's currently open or not, for organized play. So the need for new talent was not as great and the number of other venues for new talent was increased. And although we weren't telling anyone initially, we were working on Starfinder, which obviously eats up a lot of my time. And that means if I wasn't going to do it, someone else would have to, et cetera. So in 2016, we decided to put it on hiatus. Um, now that's a background of how it worked. And I still recommend anyone who wants to be a role-playing game designer Go look up the old forums, because long before I came along, Sean K. Reynolds wrote a lot of notes about why some magic items are boring because they're just a spell in a can, and why certain kinds of monsters uh, have so many different abilities that, that you can't run them effectively, so they're not as dangerous as they sound, and they're confusing because so they don't have a theme, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's really close to a D20 game design 101 set of courses, if you go and find those on the forums. And then a lot of people have given their feedback on why they voted or didn't vote for various things. So that's a useful place, even if you're just looking to make stuff for yourself, to say, hey, what did people find exciting? What do they find interesting? Um, 
So I, I still think there's a lot of value in the old contests. We certainly have not announced any plan to run the contest again. And uh, given my current workload, something would have to be found scheduling wise to make that possible if I was going to be involved or someone else would have to uh, either volunteer or be voluntold to do it. But we do have a new game system in place. So certainly I could see a circumstance where someone would say, okay, maybe it's time for RPG Superstar Season 10. But I still suspect we're going to wait and see how the talent pool for Starfinder goes. Uh, Pice has been very, very public that they want to have strong third-party publisher support for Starfinder, and have even arranged for a lot of companies to be releasing third-party material uh, day one. And a lot of the companies that that I've said they are doing this, people like Frog God and Legendary Games, um, are clearly going to be training up their own freelancers. So that may become another pool of talent we can access. So I don't, I honestly don't have an insight one way or the other. Obviously, even if I knew, if we haven't announced anything, I wouldn't blab. But I, I can safely say, if it's being considered, it's being done at a pay grade significantly above mine. Um, and we'll just, we'll have to see how things pan out. So if we see if there's really a need that makes it make sense for Paisa. No, but I appreciate you pointing everyone to the old forums as a, a place to, for those of us that would maybe be interested in writing games and, and being a part of that process, to go and to learn from those old seasons, I think is a really uh, a good resource and uh, a place where we're grateful that you guys have kept those forums up and, and made them available. Yeah, there's some great information on there. I mean, I was, even the very first time they were in the contest, I, I was not allowed to run. I had too many credits. Uh, from Paizo to do that. But I certainly read the advice and looked at what people was doing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why when I showed up in 2014, I volunteered to take over running it. Um, and I had a lot of fun running it. I met a lot of neat people. And I, I even have friends that I, I met as a result of that. Uh, so I, I think it's it was very, very valuable while it ran. And if Paizo decides that value has returned, I'm sure they would consider running it again. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So as you're uh, you're on the verge of preparing to head out for Gen Con, I, I know you're obviously going to be excited about this part of a uh, of the Starfinder release. But as you head there, is there are there other things that you're excited about? Uh, maybe getting to see at Gen Con. So one of the things that always excites me the most about getting to go to Gen Con is I have a lot of friends in the game industry. Uh, there are a lot of people I met when I worked at Wizards of the Coast who don't live out here in Seattle anymore. Uh, there are even people who do live in Seattle that I just never see except for a Gen Con, even though that's traveling 2,000 miles to hang out with someone that lives 50 miles away. Um, but I've also got friends and even family from other states who sort of all gather at Gaming Mecca at Gen Con. So it's an opportunity to run into uh, people that I haven't gotten to see for a year, or in this case two years ago last year, uh, and hang out with those. There are also a lot of seminars that there are seminars that I will be giving uh, along with other Starfinder folks, but there are also Starfinder. There are also seminars that other people will be giving that I am looking forward to going and seeing. There's an industry insider track that always has a uh, really broad group of people with skills that are different than mine talking about their experiences and what works well and doesn't work well for them in the industry and what they found useful. And I always try and catch a few of those um, because I just I think it's really useful. For a designer, developer, editor to have a good feel for not only what other people on your part of the industry are doing, but what people who are connected to other parts of the industry are doing. They've got bloggers and they've got uh, artists and they have producers. And these are people that that have a inside track on what other sections of making a game look like. 
And I think it can be really useful to remember that as enamored as we are of the words, there's a lot more that goes into a game than just having a, a good set of math and a good description of that. So that's always something that excites me. Uh, this year, as I understand it, there's a There Might Be Giants concert. Um, I'm a fan of them. I am a fan of, the, of They Might Be Giants, and I am told that there's someone holding tickets for me, so I might get to go do that. That would certainly be cool. Uh, and I also just like wandering around the dealer's hall playing game demos. There are almost always a bunch of people that are demoing games, and it's a great opportunity to have someone who's excited about the game and understands the game teach you not just how to play the game, but what about the game is interesting and exciting. Uh, and there are a lot of games. I mean, the first time I ever played Apples to Apples was at a Gen Con years and years and years ago, and I became addicted to that game. Uh, there are a lot of board games and card games and, and things that I've done over the years there that just I, I get hooked on and get very excited by. So it's another part of the, the entire experience. I also, honestly, I, I look forward to being in a place where a good chunk of an entire city turns into a place that is designed to be my Mecca, right? I mean, there are multiple restaurants that have <laughs> gamer-themed menus, and they they hang posters. I remember two years ago when I went there, I'm coming down the escalator in the airport from my plane, and like 20 feet across and 10 feet high, there's a banner that has been put out on the floor so that you see as you're coming down the escalator that says, Welcome to Gen Con! And there's, you know, art of a warrior on one side. And I'm like, there, there's no other place I can go where they're literally going <laughs> to roll out the geek carpet for me to to get to be with my people. And I think because of, as I said, when I was trying to make friends growing up, those things were my my geek, my gang colors for my geek gangs that people would say, oh, you've got a Starfleet Battles box, you must be one of us. And so having an entire town sort of roll out the experience of, hey, this is what it's like when you people run everything. I like getting to be one of those we people. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I've never been, but I've been to cons and some things like it that it's a, it's a unique experience for sure. Well, Owen, thanks for being on the show. We always close with this question. So other than Starfinder, what is something right now that you're nerding out about that you might recommend to, uh, to listeners? So <laughs> I'm actually nerding out the most about a trend and that, tr and this is going to take a little explanation. Sure. And that trend is superhero visual media. Um, the idea 20 years ago that the majority of blockbusters or at least multiple blockbusters every year would be a series of interconnected Marvel and DC comic movies would have just been unthinkable. Uh, the idea that there would be a, a network that has four or five interconnected superhero television shows would be pretty well unthinkable. It would be utterly alien people to expect to run into that and one of the reasons i'm geeking out about this i mean right at the moment i'm really 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 looking forward to thor ragnarok but part of that is because superhero comics are in general just science fantasy with masks so it, the the dividing line between guardians of the galaxy uh and thor for example isn't that thick and the idea that we can run a game where there is someone who is uh, a god who is hanging out with someone with a plasma rifle who are trying to stop an alien emperor from getting magic gems that can take over the galaxy, <laughs> that's that's a Starfinder game. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I am really excited that there's this new baseline that a lot of us can share and talk about. 
uh, and I, I am, you know, when I was growing up for visual media, we, we had Dragon's Lair and we had the D&D cartoon and <laughs> anything else was probably something obscure or in general considered bad. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Krull, but I'm, I'm not going to claim it's the height of cinema. Um, and there are now, not only are there a bunch of these movies, but there are so many of them that superhero movie isn't one genre anymore, right? You've got a superhero movie that's a caper film in Ant-Man. You've got a superhero movie that's a war movie for both Wonder Woman and Captain America. Yeah, yeah. You have a superhero movie that's a science fiction movie, Guardians of the Galaxy. So we get to explore these different kinds of things, and that is great fodder, but also a great common experience for fans of the science and magic, and heroes are all blended into one setting. Yeah, I, I, it's um, if you had told fourteen-year-old me that uh, the dominant form of cinema at, the, at this point in my life would be superhero movies, I uh, I would be really sort of blown away by what's out there and available. And uh, it's such a so it's awesome to be a part of it and to get to take um you know I have a, a two nieces and a nephew and uh, to be able to take them to those stories and be uh it's it's amazing to think about they're never going to have lived in a world where we just hoped and kept our fingers crossed that maybe one day we'd get to see one of them on the screen to now that you know there's uh, three four five six of them a year so it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I, I told someone the other day, they're talking about how much they liked a specific movie, and I don't want to call anyone out. Uh, and it's a superhero movie I enjoy. And they're, they, were, they were sort of apologizing that I didn't like it. I said, no, you don't get it. I'm happy. I am happy that there are so many different kinds of superhero media that I don't have to feel like I have to support it. In the 1990s, if a superhero television show came on, I was like, well, I got to watch this or else they won't make any more. But now something comes along and I don't like it. I can just go, well, that wasn't for me. That's fine. I'm sure there's someone who likes it that doesn't like the thing I do like. And we have so many of them. I'll just go watch uh, Jessica Jones on Netflix. It's fine. Or I'll go watch the CW or or wait three months for the next superhero movie to come on television or to come on the theater. Um, and that that is a total change for what it was like 15, 20, 25 years ago when I was first really getting into it. Okay, if I'm honest, 30, 35 years ago <laughs> when I was first getting into this stuff, it just wasn't the same. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's definitely uh, one of the things that um, we've enjoyed talking about on our side a lot is uh, the rise of the superhero and, uh, and just the way it is such a prevalent force in pop culture today. So I definitely would agree with you. It's uh, something that... Uh, it's awesome that we can nerd out about that. Uh, that's the world we live in. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Owen, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. I, I want to do want to point people towards you. Um, if you want to follow and see more of Owen stuff, he uh, has two places, especially uh, his uh, blog is owencaseystevens.com. And then on Twitter, you can follow him at Owen underscore Stevens. So thanks so much for being here on the drift today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited just to see you all be excited. I appreciate what you're, you're bringing as energy and information to the fandom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hope you guys have a great launch at Gen Con and uh, you have a great uh, weekend there. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to The Drift, a Starfinder podcast presented by Nerds on Earth. Our theme music is a product of our amazing audio engineer, Andrew Danielson. You can learn more about his work at danielsonsound.com. Thanks again to our guest, Owen Stevens. You can find out more about Owen at owencksteevens.com. 
and follow him on Twitter at Owen underscore Stevens. Next time on The Drift, the game is finally here. What do we think and how is the gameplay going? Finally, if you've liked The Drift, we would encourage you to check out our latest new podcast from nerdsonearth.com. Hall Fights is where we talk about the Marvel characters and their Netflix shows and the upcoming Defenders television show, which releases this week. You can find out more information at nerdsonearth.com and search for Hall Fights.